0: The Invictus Mind, Episode 7. Hello, this is Mike Corbell. Each and every person is a sovereign individual, born with a spark of divinity, with unique and unlimited potential. But every one of us will face unique challenges, obstacles, or roadblocks. There are systems in this world that may be built against our own best interests, Governments use force to coerce and compel us. Sometimes we build systems in our very own head. In each episode, we will look at these systems, these roadblocks, the things that prevent us from reaching our true potential. We will discuss how to break free and regain our sovereignty, how we can become the master of our fate and the captain of our soul. Hi, everyone. My next guest is really exciting. Uh, he's the National Communications Director for the Tenth Amendment Center. He's the author of three books and uh, runs three different podcasts, one of my favorite being the God Archie podcast. He is none other than Michael Meharry. <laughs> How you doing michael
1: i'm doing well how are you
2: good
0: good so you know when i saw your website there was a lot of things i didn't i didn't know you were involved in so many activities
1: yeah i'm i'm overworked and underpaid basically <laughs> are we all <laughs> yeah exactly yeah. that's the the nature of the quote unquote liberty movement
0: so you're a musician huh
1: yeah i mean i'm a hack musician okay. but i I did some Christian music back in the '90s with my ex-wife, and and uh, so I guess I could say I was a professional musician at one time. I, I play a lot of different interest, instruments. I don't really play anything particularly well, <laughs> so but I do enjoy it. It's kind of my my stress relief.
0: Okay, okay. Did you create the music for your podcast? Uh, yes. Okay. I did. Yeah, I, I'm a former bass guitar player, and I'm. I just bought a keyboard for my daughter for Christmas. My wife says that I bought it for myself. She's not wrong.
1: <laughs> you know, um, yeah, and there's nothing wrong with that. But then again, you know what's going to happen because this is what happened to me. She'll end up being a better musician than you are. Right. <laughs> <laughs> my uh, my son's actually studying music in in college right now. He's he does um, composition, and he's really really talented. I'm like, way to go, kid.
0: <laughs> well, there you so. go. So, what did you think about uh, the passing of Neil Peart?
1: Man, you know, I'm 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 not understating the fact that this is really the first celebrity death that has bothered me. Um, Neil Peart was. I, I'm I'm kind of one of those people. I don't really like the whole hero worship. I don't get into celebrities. I, you you would very rarely find me standing in line for a uh, an autograph or something like that. But. Uh, if if there was anybody that i would call a teenage hero it was neil purt and the guys in rush I mean, they were extremely influential as a musician and uh, also as uh, uh, the lyrics you know it, it kind of it was one of those things that made me think you know you can have substance in music and uh, it really has hit me you know it's I, part of it's that whole mortality thing you know you realize that you're getting old when you're the, the people that you admired and listened to when you were growing up start to pass away but uh, yeah, it was, it was, uh, it uh, impacted me emotionally a lot more than I really expected it to, to be honest.
2: Hmm,
0: that's interesting. Yeah, I like Rush. I listened to a lot of Rush uh, songs. I I actually didn't know that uh, he was a libertarian or at least he had a libertarian, uh, mindset. Yeah.
1: I think he was more, more so in his early years. He, the, some of the like 2112 album was heavily influenced by Ian Rand. Um, I think later in life, he kind of described himself as a bleeding heart libertarian. So, uh, I think he kind of skewed in, skewed over to the left in his political views. But uh, you definitely see a lot, of, uh, a lot of that coming through in, in the lyrics, uh, especially I think the album Power Windows, uh, which was kind of in the heyday of my Rush fandom. I think that really was a uh, – there's a lot of libertarian messaging, particularly the, uh, the song Territories, which is a, a really, really powerful anti-war song when you kind of delve into the lyrics of it.
0: I'll have to check that out. Well, Michael, um, there's so much to talk about here. You know, I, I've been checking out your God Archie podcast. That was kind of the twist that uh, got me intrig- uh, intrigued by talking to you. And yeah. And then I discovered that uh, somehow you knew my brother, uh, my brother Jason. <laughs> how did that come about?
1: Well, we're, we've been Facebook friends for a long time, and I, I really don't know how we connected. I'm going to assume it was probably through the Tenth Amendment Center work. Okay. Um, and, and of course that's for, for people who don't know the 10th amendment center is an organization that is focused on constitutional originalism. Uh, we do education and, and teach people what the constitution actually, uh, was understood to mean when it was ratified. And then we also do a lot of activism, which involves using state and local power to undermine unfedera- unconstitutional federal actions. So I've been the communications director there for 10 years and, uh, it, it's been a big part of my of my work. And I'm imagining that that's probably where we connected, but mostly we argue about UCF and USF at oh. the uh, university of central Florida and university of South Florida. I'm a USF alum and, uh, he's a big UCF fan. And so that's been hard on me the last couple of years because our football team's awful. But, but yeah, that's f- good times. That,
0: that's funny. Uh, you know, I, I never went to a formal college, so I don't have a college uh, team that I really root for. Yeah. I went to Devry University, so you know we had a goose that stood outside the building. So you know we were the geese.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. It's probably it's probably healthier. I'm I am uh, I I am probably more invested in sports than I should be sometimes. But you know it is what it is.
0: Well, you got to follow your passion, right?
1: Right. Exactly. Again, something it's something to uh, divert attention for the weight from the weightier things that we have to deal with on a day to day basis. Kind of an escape, I guess.
0: So uh, just briefly, uh, you mentioned that you were the National Communications Director uh, for 10 years. What, what exactly does that mean? What is your job with the 10th Amendment Center?
1: I write stuff. <laughs> that's okay. that's basically it. Uh, yeah, um, I do a lot of the content on the website. Uh, so there's kind of a mix of, of content that we produce. I, I've written a lot of articles over the years. Uh, on constitutional originalism, on the concept of nullification, which is the 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 kind of nerdy term for what I mentioned earlier, using state and local power to block and undermine uh, unconstitutional federal actions. Uh, there's actually a very deep history of nullification. It goes all the way back to Thomas Jefferson and James Madison, so I've done a lot of research and writing on that uh, history, um, and, and whatnot. And then there's also, again, with the activism, I do a lot of bill reports, uh, basically just reporting on various bills that are introduced in state houses. Um, and this time of year, that's primarily what I'm doing between about January and April, when most state legislatures are in session. Uh, I'm analyzing uh, legislation uh, and reporting on bills that we support at the 10th Amendment Center. Um, so, you know, I've written something like 4,000 articles over the last 10 years or something absurd like that. But, um, you yeah, know, definitely keeps me busy and, and uh, it's a subject that I enjoy. I also do some other things as well. I do press releases and, uh, you know, I do uh, some some video work and uh, also do quite a bit of, I, I guess for lack of a better word, lobbying uh, and, and networking with state legislators across the country to help push good bills through and, and sometimes block bad bills. So, um, a lot of hats that that I wear, and uh, basically, there's just you know, there's it's not a huge organization. It's basically just Michael Bolden and I, and then a, a number of volunteers. So, there's plenty plenty to be done.
0: Yeah, I, I actually caught the episode when you spoke to uh, Tommy Selman's on his podcast. Yeah, uh, You were petitioning for uh, – was it the bringing the troops home, or uh, what was that exactly?
1: Yeah, it's called the Defend the Guard Act, and it's a piece of legislation that has been introduced in West Virginia since, I think, 2016 by a uh, state representative named Pat McGeehan, who is uh, uh, one of the very few politicians in the entire world that I actually like and trust. Um and the basic gist of this bill is that it would prohibit the deployment of National Guard troops into foreign combat zone without a actual congressional declaration of war, which, of course, hasn't happened since uh, the World War II. Uh, and really what it's designed to do more than anything is to force Congress to do its job and actually uh, – Retake control over war powers then you know under the original constitution the president was only supposed to execute what the Congress authorized and uh, Basically the Congress has passed the buck over the last 75 years and and allowed the president to unilaterally make decisions about war and peace and you know, these things should be debated in a a, uh, in, in the Congress where the people are better represented instead of having one person have that unilateral power. You know, if you go back to the founding era, the the big fear was vesting too much power in a single individual. That's why the president was intended to be very a very weak figure in American politics, and unfortunately, it's uh, evolved to be quite different. Um, you know, the the. British had a great deal of experience with kings having grudges against people and then dragging the whole country off into war. And uh, that's why you don't want this power to be vested in a single person. So the Defendant Guard Act would uh, take a step toward trying to reestablish that constitutional uh, balance of power. And uh, so far it's been introduced in four states. Well, we're very early in the legislative session. From what I understand, there have been 12 uh, state representatives that have committed Uh, to introduce the bill and the goal is to have 20 introduced and I think if we get to that kind of threshold of of 10 or so when that happens I think it's going to be something that will become national news uh, especially given the recent events that we've seen with Iran and and whatnot so yes that's just one of the many things we do at the 10th amendment center it's probably the thing that I'm most excited about this year because uh, at my heart and soul anti-war is probably my most uh the issue that I'm most passionate about and would really like to see this get some traction because there, there has to be something done to reign in this warfare state and the perpetual wars that uh, the United States has been engaged in really for decades.
0: I agree. And that's probably the number one argument I have with my Republican friends.
1: <laughs> yes, it is.
0: <laughs> you know, because there's a, there's a fine line between whether I want to agree with the Democrats and whether I want to with the republicans but for some reason i'm always thinking the republicans should know better but they just they don't
1: yeah it's really frustrating to me and and the the you know i i came from that i mean i was a, a I was definitely a i guess you would probably have termed me religious right uh conservative in my younger days and i was very pro-war up until about five or six years ago and now i'm doing penance for that uh, and the thing that really started to, well, there were two things. The first thing was is, is that I really started to contemplate what we are talking about. You know, you say these glib things. I saw it on Facebook just today, you know, nuke Iran, just nuke them off the map. And when you really stop and think about what you're saying, you're talking about eliminating millions of lives who, who have done absolutely nothing to to hurt or harm you. It's their government has a beef with our government. So let's kill millions of people. That's absurd when you really start to think through it in a rational way so that was the first thing i started to have some some moral qualms about war but then from a pragmatic standpoint you know somebody pointed out to me uh, the the fact and this should be self-evident right but the same horrible people that are running the domestic policy that, that i hated are running the foreign policy too so why would i think that they're so great at foreign policy when they're so awful at domestic policy and uh you know tom woods is actually the person that said that to me or i heard him say that in a speech and i was like oh you know again duh but you know we get so indoctrinated in into our ways of thinking about things particularly in american politics with the left-right paradigm and we've got the good guys and the bad guys and if you're a republican then these people are good guys and we're going to support them no matter what And, and it's really a dumb way to view the world that that whole uh you know, buy What's the, what's the word I'm looking for? Not bipolar. Well, it is bipolar in a lot of ways, but, uh, uh, you know, just creating these false dichotomies, uh, it's, it's a dumb way to look at the world and, uh, it frustrates me to no end. I think Republicans re- frustrate me more because that's where I came from. And it's like, you should see this. And, um, you know, it's interesting. Just if you, if you look at the wreckage of U S foreign policy, uh, I mean, you know, since the end of the Cold War, I mean, I'm sure you could go back to the Cold War and it was a wreck then, too. But, you know, if you really just go back to the end of the Cold War and look at the foreign policy and what it has brought us, uh, central planning doesn't work any better in foreign policy than it does in economics uh, and and really for the same reasons we can't fathom the unintended consequences of a given action so you can look at somebody like saddam hussein and say oh this is an awful person and he was and you know he should be eliminated and then you eliminate him and then you create a power vacuum and the next thing you know you have isis so you know it's unintended consequences it's it's uh, almost if, if people would apply economic thinking to things like foreign policy i think we'd be a lot better off
0: well, I agree with that assessment. There's a lot of people who sit there and think that what we're doing overseas has no effect here at home, and uh, you know, I'm totally uh, against that thought process. Has <laughs> everything well, to do. Well, with-
1: it, it's funny that you said that because I just did a short video for. I, I do like these one minute videos for the 10th uh, Amendment Center that we often put on Instagram. Sometimes we throw, throw them up on Twitter, and I actually talked about that today about the consequences of you know we have this this uh, kind of duality in our political thinking. We have domestic policy and we have foreign policy. And it's like they're two different things. And in reality, they are very, very intertwined. And if you just look at war, the impact of war at home is tremendous. Uh, in the first place, it costs a lot of money. To fight war perpetually. So uh, when you're spending a lot of money, there's only two things that you can do. You can either tax it out of the population or you can borrow it, both of which are, are detrimental to the uh, overall economy. And so that leads to central banking. It leads to the Federal Reserve monetizing the debt that's being run up, which you know ends up creating inflation, which decreases your wealth. Uh, And then you know, just look at things like the security state. This is a direct result of foreign policy, the uh, the spying and the uh, violation of private right, privacy rights that we see in the United States that uh, Edward Snowden so uh, wonderfully revealed to us. That's a result of war, you know. And then it was interesting, you know. uh, There's a quote by James Madison, and it's it's rather lengthy, and I can't pull it all out of my head uh, at the moment. But he talks about the effects of war, and he says. A country cannot remain free in a perpetual state of warfare, and he listed all of these things, the the growing power of the executive, the the growth of taxes. And one of the things that I think is really interesting as a Christian is he talked about the degradation of morals Mm -hmm. that occurs during war. And that's exactly what you see when you hear people saying, well, we should just – You know, turn Iran into glass. That is a horrible ethical, moral position to hold. That you're just going to obliterate people because you don't like their government. And and yet we accept this because we become callous to killing and warfare uh, when we are constantly embroiled in in those types of conflicts. So I think you're absolutely right. You know, the the war the wars abroad ultimately do come home uh, in a variety of ways, both in practical um, policies that erode our liberties in, in, in terms of our own moral and ethical compasses of society.
0: Right. And what's interesting to me is that the Christian perspective on this is, uh, is totally flawed. And I think what helps, I, I don't know if it's uh, a just thing in their mind or not, but uh, they, they tend to dehumanize our enemies instead of, exactly. you know, Jesus said, love thy enemy. Right? right but when we dehumanize people who are against us then we're not we're not killing human beings we're just we're killing the enemy right
1: right exactly and you know you see this throughout history anytime that uh, we do horrible things to people and by we i mean various governments or organized organized groups or even individuals whenever you see this happen you see that dehumanization process slavery relied on dehumanization uh, you know, warfare relies on dehumanization. We see it in the immigration debate, you know, those dirty Mexicans or whatever it is that, you know, people want to throw around. Uh, it's lumping people together in these collectivist groups and then tagging them with a uh, uh, a negative term to dehumanize them and make it okay to do bad things to them. And, you know, it's interesting. Uh, there's a, um, Rene Girard, is a, uh, is a philosopher and writer that I've, just recently started to study and one of the things that his, his big focus is on the whole concept of scapegoating uh this idea that society needs a pressure valve release and that that comes through scapegoating finding the other dehumanizing them and then basically hanging your you know hanging the sins of society on them is kind of a um uh, of a uh, of a pressure valve release and we saw it in uh, very literally in ancient civilizations where they did human sacrifices. Uh, we don't do human sacrifices anymore, but we do sacrifice people on social media. Uh, you know we, we demonize them and, and run them out of town. Uh, and it's really interesting to read some of uh, Gerard's uh, some of his ideas on this whole scapegoating because he says it is present throughout all cultures. It has happened. You, know, you can find it in ancient myth, and you can run it all the way through to modern day. And then the, the other interesting aspect of it is that he said that Jesus was the ultimate scapegoat that really creates the way out of this cycle if we would just follow him because he allowed himself to be sacrificed and scapegoated and then overcame it by rising from the dead so um you know it, it's it's really interesting to to see the way that happens and it as i've read him i see scapegoating in so many ways both from the left and the right and uh, for religious folks and non-religious folks it's almost like it's a uh maybe part of the of the fall or something I don't know
0: sure sure and you brought up Renee Garrard uh, I heard his name for the first time it was probably on either your podcast with uh, um, David Gornowski or he was exactly he yeah. was also on Bob Murphy uh, a few months ago and I thought that was a fascinating take on and, and everything
1: yeah I mean he's actually the person that that kind of turned me onto to it and then I've been trying to read Gerard and it's not easy it's it's a uh, it's pretty difficult and then i keep getting bunny trailed into different things but it is really interesting to see and you know just from the Chris- christian perspective one of the main reasons that i created godarchy and you can people can check that out at godarchy.org uh, both articles and the podcast there one of the reasons i started it really more than anything was to bring some type of anti-war focus uh, into the christian discussion because there seems to be very little of that and uh, so that's you know that was kind of the motivation. And I really believe that no matter what denominational uh, you know, we, we argue a lot about uh, denominations and and doctrine and and even theology. But I think all Christians of of whatever stripe, broadly speaking, should be able to agree that Jesus gave us a very, uh, a, a very obvious set of ethical and moral teachings, particularly in the Sermon on the Mount, that we should take seriously as believers. And uh, I, I really, if I could do anything in the world, that's that's the one thing I would like to do, is, is just see Christians look at the ethical and moral teachings of Jesus and and struggle with applying those in our lives. I recognize that there's a lot of difficult things that we have to kind of to work our way through, you know, in terms of, of the... Uh, legitimacy of violence I mean should we be complete pacifist is defense of violence okay we should wrestle with these things but most people don't even wrestle with it it's just like oh well they're bad guys kill them <laughs> right and uh, and and you know the the teachings of Jesus uh, the, the whole love your enemies turn the other cheek love your neighbor as yourself uh, I think we need to consider those things and and uh, so that's kind of my goal with the whole Godarchy thing is just to get folks to think about that and think in those terms it makes people mad. I, I spend a lot of time making people mad, apparently.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, that's what all libertarians do.
1: <laughs> I guess.
0: You know, you must have read my mind because I was actually going to address this specific topic. I uh, recently spent some time in, uh, in some of these Christian anarchist groups. And uh, my understanding of voluntarism and libertarianism is one of tolerance, right? Right. Where uh, we, we don't have to agree with the other party, but we should at least tolerate their beliefs. Absolutely. And what was shocking to me is that they spend more time disagreeing about uh, the person's theology uh, and what denomination they are, rather than actually talking about anarchy. It's like, well, are we on the same page here? I mean, is that going on in your circles, or is that maybe just the circles I'm in?
1: Yeah, well, and I think i I think we're in some of the same circles, and I've actually seen some of those. i I make it a very uh, very emphatic point to stay out of those types of debates because I have enough things to debate about that. That are that are way more important, but yeah, you're right. It's frustrating because you know I, I think there's something in the libertarian psyche. It's that individualism, you know, that we want to argue, and and uh, there's there's a little bit of I want to prove that I'm right. You know, it's almost like it's almost like a bunch of athletes. You know, you get them together and they want to compete on everything. Well, libertarians want to argue about everything, uh, but yeah, I find that that frustrating, and I'm I'm more I, I like to try to be a bridge builder. And of course, you know, I'm, I'm not always good at it. I'm human and, and get frustrated with people as well. But um, I I really think that we need to try to focus on the broad principles that we agree on and, and try to drive this forward. And, and, you know, even getting out of the, the whole religious context, just in terms of the divisions that you see in libertarianism per se, uh, you know, there's some. Just horrible things said about fellow libertarians that's like, oh, uh, you know, particularly if you start getting involved in like the libertarian party politics and whatnot, it's just it just blows my mind. And I've, you know, I've got friends, I've got friends that are Cato people and friends that are Reason people and friends that are Mises people. And uh, I think we have far more to agree with than disagree with. But for some reason, everybody wants to fight. And I've always said this is stupid because, you know, there's only about 45 of us. So dividing into 15 camps and fighting is really counterproductive. Right. Um, So, yeah, I I find that same frustration, and I've actually seen some of those threads that you're talking about, and I I just don't think it's constructive. Um, And when it comes to theology, I have a very hardcore policy of not arguing uh, theology with people. Um, And even like, you know, you'll have on the Godarchy page, I'll get trolled by atheists sometimes, and I'll flat out tell them, look, I'm going to respect your disbelief, you respect my belief. Let's find some things to get along with. If you really have questions that you want to ask me, I'll be happy to answer and discuss outside of a, of a public forum. But to try to argue somebody into uh, a faith or a belief system is, I think, counterproductive. And, you know, I, I believe that the Holy Spirit works in our hearts and we all have to work out our salvation. And, you know, in, in terms of theology, I'm not going to try to argue you into belief uh Either in God as as a broad picture or into some theological f- framework, because first off, it's not my job. Uh, second off, I'm not all that certain that I'm right. And and third off, you know, it, it's it's just creates antagoni- antagonism. You and I could I'm sure that we could find some things on on theology to debate. What point is that? You're not going to change my mind. I'm not going to change your mind. Uh, so let's focus on building bridges and working together to make the world a better place.
0: Well, I really agree with that, uh, especially on social media when you're limited by only texting and, and, and exactly. memes. I've actually challenged some of them to uh, have an open discussion on in, in this kind of format on a podcast. But right. Because the way I figure with a podcast, if you have an opinion, people can either choose to look, listen to you or not, and uh, they have to do more work to actually discredit you or fight back or whatever they want to do.
1: <laughs> yeah, I've actually tried to do that with the Godarchy podcast. I've done a, a several episodes with uh, I, I did one with an atheist, and, and I've called these fireside chats. So I've had a fireside chat with an atheist. I've had a fireside chat with a Muslim, which was absolutely fascinating to me, not knowing a whole lot about Islam. Uh, you know, I was I was not shocked to learn that all Muslims don't think the same thing. <laughs> you know, uh, but when you talk, when you get out there in the social media world, you know, all the Muslims want a dot dot dot. That's just absurd, uh, and. Uh, I had another fireside chat. I can't remember what it, which what it was, but um but yeah, you know, I think it's important to to build those bridges and as as people that you know, working in society, we're trying to we're trying to make the world more free. We're trying to promote individual liberty, uh, let's cooperate on that. I will cooperate with anybody in the world that, that agrees on those basic fundamentals, uh, no matter what their religious stripes might happen to be. You know, I'll, I'll hang out with the Muslim if they believe in freedom. Uh, I think it's silly to, to, again, there's only about 45 of us. So, uh, I'm not gonna, you know, say you two can't be here because you don't believe X. I just, I don't have time for that. It's counterproductive. And, you know, interestingly, uh, we take the same approach at the Tenth Amendment Center on political activism, which surprises a lot of people. I work with people on the left and right on a daily basis. I work with some hardcore leftists sometimes on uh, issues like surveillance uh, because they're the ones that are out there doing the work. And we may disagree with 45 policy areas, but if we can actually get together and, and work together to limit surveillance... We're going to do it because it, it makes the world better for for all of us all the way around. And, and interestingly, a lot of times you have opportunities to talk about broader issues of liberty when you're working with people and, and earning their respect um, instead of attacking them and saying, well, I'm not working with you because, you know, I can't work with you on surveillance because we disagree on economics. Well, that's dumb. <laughs> so, right. Yeah.
2: So, are you familiar with uh, Larry Sharp? I am
1: familiar with Larry Sharp. I, I uh, had the opportunity to meet him, uh, I guess, about a year ago, briefly. Uh, I haven't really followed him closely, but uh, I think he's done some really good work in terms of, of doing some of this kind of bridge building and, uh, and, and uh, creating a viable libertarian presence in a difficult state in New York. That's, that's something right there.
2: Right, right. He came to uh, Chicago, uh, it was about a year ago. My wife and I had a chance to meet him. And I liked uh, his philosophy of what you're talking about. Uh, you know, work with the left when right. you and the left agree. Work with the right when you and the right agree. And it's something I really believe. Is that I think most human beings all want the same thing. Mm-hmm. It's that they don't understand that we're all communicating in the same way. Right. Or, I mean, we have different words, but we want the same thing. We just got to figure out what's the best way to solve our problems.
1: Exactly. You know, and, and a lot of um, a lot of bad politics is just a result of ignorance, uh, particularly when you start talking about economic issues. Most people don't understand economics. And, you know, I've spent years studying economics, and, and I would consider myself a novice in terms of economic thinking, so... Uh, you know, most people have no exposure to economics whatsoever. And if they have had any exposure to it, it's usually bad Keynesian economics to begin with. So, uh, you know, it's no wonder, uh, bad economics leads to bad policy and, uh, that's a difficult bridge to overcome. But, um, that's one of the things that can happen when you're actually working shoulder to shoulder with other people, uh, because it takes the guard down. I had a fascinating conversation with, uh, a young lady that, uh, is in one of the state ACLU chapters. Um, she's a policy director there, and, and we actually had lunch a couple of years ago. And we, you know, we were talking about surveillance and ended up talking about some other policies and agreeing on some things, disagreed on some things. And I ended up, t- started talking to her about the concept of anarchism. And she listened and she started thinking about it. She goes, you know, maybe I'm an anarchist. <laughs> so, you know, I don't I don't know if she ever went all the way down that road, but at least she thought about it. And that would have never happened if, if we had had this, um, you know, kind of closed door policy that we're not going to work with anybody that's not 100% on board with our ideology.
2: So I, I've been told that uh, it's, it's easier to convince the left of economics than it is the, the right of peace or something like that. Do you, do you agree with that at all?
1: I've heard that. I don't know. Um, I, I think it's hard to do both. I, I don't know if that's true or not. I think it's, uh, I don't know. What do you think? That's a good question.
2: So I have a friend, he's a really good friend of mine and, uh, he'll say that he is uh, more libertarian than I give him credit for, which he may be. We, we worked together and, uh, um, you know we, we we help each other with uh, success principles, but every time we mm-hmm. get into a conversation about like peace and about war and American foreign policy, you know he takes this role of we have to be the world's policeman and you know he's he wants he wants to fight for the little guy because right. you know he was a little guy when he was in school and you know he remembers being picked on and he doesn't like that so he wants to so right. I'm like, is that really what America's job is?
1: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's hard. It's for me, I'm an example of somebody who was pro-war that was convinced of peace. Um, So it obviously can happen. Uh, Economic, like I said, economics is hard because the, the the frustrating thing about trying to talk to people about economics is that it is a it's an academic discipline. So it's like. I'm not going to have a 10-minute conversation with you and explain engineering, mm-hmm. right? I mean, you know, that would be that would be absurd. Or, or biology. You know, I'm going to teach you biology and you know, on Facebook. Uh, and there's so many concepts of on economics that are are in, in, difficult to grasp. And so, you know, that's a good job for somebody to figure out how to teach economics simply. I always recommend Economics in One Lesson by Henry Hazlitt. That's a good starting place. Um, but there has to be some curiosity on the other end of the of the spectrum and, and a willingness to do some study and reading and um, you know in, in the world we live in who has time for that so uh, I think there's more hurdles in terms of getting people to explore economics because let's be honest most people think economics are uh, boring. And, uh, you know, peace is more of a moral, ethical kind of position that you can kind of work through differently. I don't know. I think, I think both are hard. You know, once people are indoctrinated into a given worldview, it's very difficult, especially old people. Uh, it's very difficult to move us out of our, our ways of thinking. You know, we make fun of boomers. Uh, boomers are like that for a reason.
2: <laughs> you know, they've, yeah.
1: they've been alive a long time. They've had a long time to, uh, to solidify their point of view.
2: You know, the thing about economics is it's, it's really a social studies rather than a mathematics. And I think that people have yes. been taught that economics is math. Yes. I remember taking a macroeconomics class in college and I was like, okay, there's some formulas here. And right. I didn't really like the math aspect. And I think that scares a lot of people away. But if we teach them from the approach to economics is a social science, um, they might grasp the concepts a little bit better. That's just my opinion, though.
1: I agree completely. The whole Austrian school thought of of thought that is more of a – of a, you know they call it prox- proxology, is the word I'm trying to say. Proxology. Um, proxology, yes, exactly. So it's the idea of building ideas upon ideas, and it starts with the very premise that humans act, and I think all of us can grasp that. And it is a very logical, uh, uh, kind of a right-brained. Uh, using words and and ideas. That's a much better way, I think, to teach economics to the average person. But I think you're right. Most people do go like, oh, I'm going to have to do math. And I, you know, I have an accounting degree, believe it or not, from my first foray through school. And and I still think that, oh, math. (laughs) So, you know, you can imagine the lay person.
2: You know, um, he said something to me that uh, made me really think about how I want to label myself. In this libertarian world, because a lot of people might call themselves anarcho Christians, excuse me, anarcho capitalists, or a um, like a minarchist or uh, um, an anarchist. But I I really think that there's a lot of problems in the world that simple anarcho capitalism can't solve. Mm -hmm. So that's why I'm really kind of turned on to this Christian perspective. Uh, When you actually look at the gospel, when you actually look at uh, the thing that the King of Kings taught, you know that's really that's really what we're all about.
1: Right. Yeah, I agree completely. You know, um, uh, I've always, uh, you know, there's this whole idea of, of thick versus thin libertarianism. And and thin libertarianism is basically uh, two principles, private property, non-aggression. And then you have thick libertarianism, which adds all of this other stuff onto it. And uh, when you just look at libertarian just take that thin approach. It's really a political philosophy. And a political philosophy or an an economic framework can only go so far. They're not going to deal with issues of the soul, issues of the heart. Um, So yeah, I definitely put uh, the the idea of libertarianism broadly or whatever label you want to use into a broader context because there are things that uh, politics and economics can't solve and don't address, uh, you know, the issues of sin, issues of of moral right and wrong, uh, the issues of love and hate. So I think that my faith fits neatly into the the political philosophy, but it's certainly the political philosophy is certainly not the whole of my faith. And. Um, I like the term. I, I th- I'm with you. Terminology is really difficult. I don't like to use anarchist because uh, most people, when you when they hear that word, they think of somebody throwing rocks and setting garbage cans on fire. Uh, you know, they think of, of it in the uh, vernacular anarchy that you know rioting in the streets. So I don't want people to have that impression. Uh, I don't like the term libertarian because nobody knows what in the world that means. Uh, you know, I, I, think most, I think most normal people, uh, normies out there, some people like to say, I think most of the time when they hear libertarian, they think fiscally conservative, socially liberal. And I don't think that's really a good description of my worldview. I, I tend to use the term voluntarist, uh, which again, nobody knows what it means, but they'll go, well, what does that mean? And then you can kind of explain, well, I believe that all interactions should be voluntary and, uh. And that's something that that most people grasp. And I think that's one of those fundamental things. Like you said, people generally want the same things out of lives. they they want to they want to basically be left alone to live their lives, find their loves, make their fortune, love their children, build their families. I think that's what most people want. And I think most people can wrap their head around like around the fact like, yeah, probably would be a good idea to have a world where we don't hit each other. And make try to make each other do things. So I like to start with that kind of very basic premise, which, you know, happens to be very much like the uh, the uh, Christian teaching of love your neighbor as yourself.
2: Right. I mean, don't hurt me, don't take my stuff. We learn when we're uh, in first grade.
1: Right. Exactly. And then it becomes, don't hurt me, don't take my stuff unless I want to make you be engaged in my political program, <laughs> and then it's okay to hit you.
2: Right. Exactly. Uh, we we'll throw you from a helicopter.
1: Yeah, yeah, I hate that meme.
2: <laughs> so, uh, very interesting. So, uh, you have a uh, uh, three books that you've published already, right? And uh, a bunch of uh, e-books.
1: That is correct. So, I have um, my main big book is called uh, "Our Last Hope: Rediscovering the Lost Path to Liberty," and basically, it's the philosophical, moral. And constitutional argument for this idea of state nullification Uh, and I explained that earlier basically using state and local power to undermine federal authority this is something that's rooted in the constitutional structure uh, of of America and so I lay that case out in very deep detail in the book uh, starting all the way back with Thomas Jefferson and James Madison and and then going through to the present and the practical applications today, so that's kind of the 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 main book. I've got a couple of of smaller books that I've written that are also on the subject of nullification. One deals with some very specific things that James Madison said. Uh, it's kind of wonky. And then another one is uh, just addressing the various um, objections we get when we talk about nullification. Um, so that I've got that. I've got some ebooks. I've done some some work on. Uh, compiling some of Thomas Jefferson's uh, and James Madison's correspondence surrounding nullification. I have a ebook book called The Power of No, which you can download for free at my website, michaelmeharry.com, just by giving me your email. Uh, and, and that's basically a uh, condensed version of the big book. And uh, I'm about to release a new book called uh, Constitution, the Owner's Manual, which is uh, Going to go through the various clauses of the Constitution and explain what they meant and how they were understood uh, at ratification. So things like the general welfare clause, uh, the necessary and proper clause. What is the proper distribution of war powers? So anybody who's interested in uh, those type of constitutional issues and that type of history will find that fascinating. If you don't care about those things, you'll be bored to death. So. <laughs> Um, but that's been, you know, that's been the bulk of my work through the Tenth Amendment Center for for the last decade. Uh, I have on my agenda next actually to do a God book and to try to uh, create a cohesive and uh, logical um, argument and apologetic, I guess, for the the concept of Christian anarchy. So that's that's next on the agenda once I kind of get through the uh, the current legislative session and have a little bit of time, probably start working on, on that over the summer.
2: My favorite historian's uh, podcasting now is Brian McClanahan. And uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with him, but uh, he uh, the Brian McClanahan show, he always talks about the Constitution, and he talks about the ratification uh, sessions. And, you know, it, it wasn't yep. something that happened o- overnight. They actually debated the Constitution for months nine, nine months, I think. It was almost a yeah. whole year. And what's, what's interesting, and that's just the nature of big government, is that people will interpret the, the words of the Constitution one way. But when you think about the intent of the writers, it's often a very different thing.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And uh, Brian is actually – I would consider him to be one of my mentors um, in, in terms of helping me to really learn the Constitution earlier on when I was starting. He was, he was one of the people I could go to and say, what do I read on this? Uh, him and, and Kevin Gutzman is also a, a really really fine constitutional scholar uh, that has had uh, a lot of influence on my thinking. But yeah, you're absolutely right. And but you know it's not as complicated. It's it's more complicated than some people want to make it. But it's not as compl- complicated as others want to make it. So I, I by that I mean that you can't just read the words of the Constitution and understand it. You know people will say well you just read the words because. Words had some different meanings and different nuances in 1780 and 1790 than they do uh, in 2020. So it's important to understand the legal framework that the Constitution was written within and and what these various clauses meant in legal terms and what these words even meant at that time. But it's easy relatively to find that out because we have – very good records of the ratification debate. So you can actually read them and see what they said. So we can see what they said about the general welfare clause. We don't have to guess what general welfare means. It's it's laid out in these debates. Uh, and so on the other side of that, you know, have some people that'll say, well, you have to have a Harvard degree in law in order to understand the Constitution. Well, that's not true either. It's it's written in such a way that a, an educated person that has a basic understanding of, of the legal system in the 1700s can understand what the Constitution meant and what it says and how it should be applied. Uh, I'll just give you a hint. It's nothing like the way it's understood and applied today. It was a very limiting document uh, giving the federal government very, very limited powers. You can simply read Federalist 45. James Madison laid it out. He said the powers delegated to the federal government uh, by the Constitution are few and defined, and those which remain with the state and people are numerous and indefinite. Uh, we flipped that on its head. Today we have a constitution that basically has given Washington, D.C. numerous and indefinite powers, and the powers of the states are few and defined. Uh, but that's not what was intended. It was supposed to be a decentralized system, and if you think about it, it makes sense. We're all different. We, you know, Europe in, in Chicago, I'm in northern Florida, very different places. Why should we have to live under the rules made by people in Washington, D.C.? Uh, You know, people balk at the idea of economic monopoly. They would throw a fit if I said, well, today we're going to have one grocery store chain for the entire country. You have to go to Walmart to get your groceries. they would be like, oh, that's an awful idea, you know, because they know that prices would go up, service would go down with no competition. The same thing is true of government. The federal government is nothing but a Giant government monopoly. So anybody who hates monopoly, I tell this to people on the left all the time. If you hate monopoly, you should hate the federal government because the federal government is nothing but a monopoly, and it has all of the bad characteristics, characteristics that you're afraid of with economic monopoly. So that's really why I uh, I do the work with the 10th Amendment Center and the Constitution as a as a uh, voluntarist. I ultimately don't think that the uh, the government's legitimate anyway from a moral ethical standpoint but this is the the hand that we're dealt and quite frankly we'd be a lot more free if we would just uh follow the uh the strictures in the constitution uh, than we are now and then you know, i guess you know in some ways it's also uh, uh instructive because we can look at what was intended and what we got and it kind of uh makes this whole idea of that we can maintain limited government seem like a bit of a farce. I, I'm not sure that, that limited government is ever, ever would be a thing, because once people have power, they're going to use it and then expand it because it's to their benefit.
2: So there's two camps of thought here. Uh, I hear some people tell me that the Constitution was divinely inspired, and then I hear sides uh, from people like uh, Lysander Spooner, who said that uh, the Constitution either gave us the government we have it was powerless to stop it. So w- what side of the uh, uh, spectrum would you f- say you're, you're on?
1: I would say I fall kind of in the middle of that. I don't think it was divinely inspired. Um, I, if it was divinely inspired, I would think that it would work better. <laughs> I, I think it was – I think for its time, it was a magnificent attempt to – address the problems that people had recognized with government and the threat to liberty Uh, the british system was very much uh what you would call a living breathing constitution the england had a constitution but it was basically formulated by the parliament and the courts and could be changed so the idea was that there was a constitution but the government could change the terms of that you know if they got enough votes and and went through the proper processes the uh, Americans recognized that this didn't quite work because they saw their liberties and rights trampled upon, so they said, okay, here's what we'll do. We'll actually make it the other way. We'll write down the, the powers that the government have. We're going to say that they can't go beyond these powers and uh, – then, then we'll have something that we can actually live with, and the government won't be able to go and change the rules in the middle of the game. Uh, the problem is, like I said, power always tends to expand, and we've seen over the years that uh, you know, as as Spoonerites will point out, uh, what we have now is nothing resembling what the Constitution was supposed to be. But I don't go as far as as Spooner because I lay a lot of the blame at uh, you know. Words on parchment are words on parchment. It's just like a contract. If you and I enter into a contract and we agree to something, uh, if one of us violates the provisions and there's nothing out there that can enforce that contract, well, it's basically useless. Uh, There was a process to enforce the Constitution. It was a check and balance of powers, and that was the power of the states. Unfortunately, we have— been brainwashed into thinking the states are basically just subdivisions of the federal government, so nobody wants to use the power of the states anymore. Um, and and so maybe that was a fatal flaw that they didn't make that more uh, express. But we can still use that power. That's what we're doing at the Tenth Amendment Center. You know, we talked about the Defend the Guard bill earlier in the show. That's a way that states can take action to say, "Look, you're not using our national guard troops for your wars unless you declare war, like the Constitution says." So there are things that we can do. The problem is that uh, that Americans have failed to do it. And. You know, maybe that's a function of the fact that most people, when they get into the political process, don't really want limited government. You know, they say they want limited government when the other guy is in charge, but when their guy is in charge, they want the government to do stuff for them. And um, that's a human nature problem that I don't know that can can ever be overcome. I've seen it so vividly. You know, uh, having worked at the 10th Amendment Center under the Obama administration, and now people that were our Diehard supporters hate us because we criticize Trump. Uh, Well, Trump's doing a lot of the same things that Obama did. And if it was wrong when Obama did it, it's wrong when Trump does it. But for some reason, there's these blinders. And it's like, well, this is our guy. And he's doing things that are good for us. And he's making America great again. And so there we can push aside these stupid constitutional bounds. They're just standing in his way. Well, okay, fine. But you're not going to have those constitutional bounds when the next guy comes along, which, you know, who knows? It might be Bernie Sanders or AOC for goodness sake. So I, my position is keep the, keep those fences in place. Don't give anybody any power. And, uh, we, we, would all much be much better off. But unfortunately I'm a minority thinker when, when you get involved in politics, cause like I said, most people, most people are interested in policies and things that they want. So there you go.
2: Right. Exactly. <laughs> and it's, uh, we're left with two options, right? We're the reds and the blues. It's like going into the grocery store trying to buy cereal, and there's only, uh, there's only Wheaties <laughs> and, and Raisin Bran. And I don't like either one of them. So,
1: Right, exactly. Or, yeah, you, you can have all bran or, or shredded wheat with no sugar. That's, that's the choice that we get.
2: Exactly, exactly. Well, very cool. Michael, uh, it's, uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you. I think we'll, we'll probably just wrap it up here. Yeah. I've checked out the website a little bit. Uh, I'm a big uh, secessionist, so uh, I hope that one day that we can actually solve the problem by letting a couple of these states figure out that they can manage their
1: own. Peaceful. Peaceful divorce. Exactly. And and you know, I mean, if you want to talk about the constitutional system, so say, no matter what these historians or, or modern legal scholars tell you, secession was built into the system. If if you have a system where you as a state, because the pro, the premier political society in the United States is the state. That is the political. And when we say state, we're not talking about the geographic boundary. We're talking about the people of that state. That was intended to be the premier political society. Well, if a political society can agree to join a union as in their sovereign capacity as a political entity, then by golly, they can agree to get out of it. Uh, this notion that the union was supposed to be you know, never-ending and that it's one nation and it can't be divided is is – Uh, quite frankly, a bunch of bunk. Uh uh, unfortunately, we have this mentality that, you know, thank you, Abraham Lincoln in the Civil War, that you, if you leave, we're going to shoot you. So that's a problem. But I think there's a lot more um, – I think there's a lot more openness to secession now than than ever before. I couldn't talk about it five years ago without you know being labeled a relate racist hater. And now at least you can have the discussion. I'm comfortable talking about secession and not being labeled an extremist because I pe- think people are starting to realize that uh, there, there's such a gulf between some of these various regions that we would be better off just to agree to disagree and go our own separate ways and uh you know conduct trade with each other and and uh live happily ever after so i'm with you i think i think ultimately my my political goal in practical politics is decentralization uh you know ultimately i'd like to be i'd like to see it decentralized to the individual and that may not be realistic in in the world as it is but Uh, We could certainly devolve down to various states or even counties or city-states or or smaller units uh, that are more manageable, that are different, where we can choose. I don't like it here. I'm going to go over there because they're more politically palatable to me. So I'm 110 percent, which isn't a thing. But if it was, I would be 110 percent on board with with what you say as far as secession goes.
2: You want to go hang out with people who think like you? But uh, you can't have 350 million people think like you, so.
1: No, no. I can't even get two people to think like me most of the time, so.
2: <laughs> well, very cool. Well, I, uh, I, like I said, I appreciate the conversation. Uh, I'm definitely going to be checking out uh, uh, some of your other podcasts. You know, I uh, want to check out some of the other ones that you have. Uh, it's your dime with uh, Shift Gold. Are you still doing that one?
1: Yeah, I didn't even mention that. That's, so that's where I make my money they they pay me <laughs> so i maintain the uh, website for shiftcold shiftcold.com/news i uh, do a couple of articles uh, every day generally talking about economics investing Uh, a lot of stuff about the Federal Reserve and monetary policy because I think that's what's driving the economy. And I do do a a podcast every Friday called the Friday Gold Wrap. It's about 10, between 10 and 15 minutes of just a summary of economic and and gold news, kind of from an Austrian economic perspective. So yeah, I do that. um, And uh, uh, like I said, that's how I, that's how I pay the bills. Okay.
2: Well, I'm going to have to have you on uh, again and talk about that kind of stuff. Yeah, for sure. uh, I, I love talking about hard money assets and gold, but uh, in my profession I, I really can't mess with that so uh, uh, having a third right. party would definitely uh, benefit I think.
1: <laughs> I'd be glad to do it and be glad to happy to do it whenever.
2: All right well you have a good weekend sir and uh, like I said I appreciate it and hopefully uh, we can get uh, more people on side of, uh, of liberty and freedom.
1: Amen thanks for having me on. I appreciate you're it.
2: you're welcome. take care.
1: Peace.
0: I want to thank Michael Meharry for coming on the program today. I also want to thank you all for listening. I hope we can each one of us find a way to build bridges in our lives and work together to promote liberty. Please subscribe to The Invictus Mind on your favorite podcast player like iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify. Come back next week for another exciting episode. Have a great day.